The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the first chapter. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in the boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. When the boys were little, <clears throat> we had a playset in our backyard with a sandbox and a slide, and two swings, and then there was a tunnel and a clubhouse that were perched atop a 10-foot ladder. For three out of four seasons of the year, they literally lived out there. Their favorite place was the clubhouse. They had sleepovers there, they ate meals there, they hid treasures there. One of their favorite games to play in the clubhouse was Pirate Ship. They imagined they were pirates sailing the southern seas, using the telescope to scour the horizon for unsuspecting ships, which they would then rob and store their stolen loot of jewels and gold in the clubhouse, which were actually, in reality, rocks and twigs. They also built castles in their sandbox, using the garden hose to fill the moats with water. They were kings and they were knights at war, often stealing my cake pans and cookie sheets and silverware to fashion drawbridges and cannons and weapons for their battles in the sand. Oliver is the son of one of our managers in Solon. Doug and I have watched Ollie since he was born. He's now seven and he has an astonishing imagination. To go for a walk around the block with Ollie means to hide behind trees from alien invaders or be chased down the sidewalk by imaginary safari animals. To take him to the splash pad means to witness a sinking submarine with Oliver thrashing and splashing and yelling SOS. With all of this snow recently, the five little boys across the street from our house were attempting to build an igloo a few days ago. I waved and I yelled hello as I drove by, but their minds were elsewhere. They were Eskimos in the Arctic Circle, building a home for their Eskimo family, using a contraband rectangular Tupperware container to pack their frozen snow bricks. Given the state of the igloo, when I returned 20 minutes later, I'm guessing this endeavor lasted about 10 minutes before it devolved into a full-on snow wrestling match. In all of these cases, the children were not faking their play. Instead, they were deep in the world of imagination. There is a difference. That is to say, these children believed that they actually were pirates and knights and kings 
Invaded by aliens and chased by elephants, aboard a sinking submarine, and Eskimos living in the Arctic Circle. If you've ever been around children when they are at play, you know they are not faking anything. Their imaginations invite a kind of pretending that is not fake at all. The imagination takes over, and the pretending creates the child's reality. It's why when you call them in for supper, they look at you like they've never seen you before, because you don't fit into their pirate or safari or Eskimo reality. Children intuitively know how to pretend something into reality. Sadly, over time, this gift goes away. Grown-ups eventually talk children out of the art of pretending, convincing them to get their head in the game, that the pretend world isn't real. In this way, then, children grow up to be adults with stifled, suffocated, and strangled imaginations. This makes me think of Jonah. First of all, I adore the book of Jonah. If you have a few extra minutes today, read it. It takes like 10 minutes to read it. It's prophetic, it's serious, it's funny. However, in addition to those things, every time I read Jonah, I feel like I have things that I want to say to Jonah. So with your permission today, I will say those things to Jonah. Prefaced by the comment, you can ask my husband, one of my signature ways of engaging in dialogue with him is for me to begin by saying, you know, the problem with you is, if you ask me, some of our best conversations have begun this way. If you ask him, he might answer differently. So I have several problems with you, Jonah. Jonah, the problem with you is not that you're cowardly. As your story begins, God gives you a command to go to the land of Nineveh, the arch enemies of you and your fellow Israelite people, and tell them that they have 90 days to repent or else God will destroy them. But you don't follow God's command. Instead, you try to run away to Spain. Not a bad choice, by the way. But you don't do this because you're cowardly. In fact, it's a bold move. Next. The problem with you, Jonah, is not that you're stupid. In fact, quite the opposite. You try to run away from God's command, not because you're stupid, but because you know if you don't deliver that message to the Ninevites, they won't have the opportunity to repent, and therefore God will have no choice but to destroy them. Brilliant. Thirdly, the problem with you, Jonah, isn't even that you are afraid of your own death. <clears throat> a raging storm assails the ship to Spain, and you offer to be thrown overboard in order to calm the sea's furious temper. The sailors comply and toss you overboard, but the Lord sends a giant fish to swallow you up and spare your life. For three days you abide in the belly of this fish, confidently praying to God to deliver you from this place of stench and death, which God does, and then you are vomited up onto the beach and your life is saved. The problem with you, Jonah, isn't that you are cowardly or stupid or afraid of death. The problem with you, Jonah, is that you lack imagination. From the moment God gives you his command to call the people of Nineveh to turn from their evil ways, you are overcome by your lack of imagination, which is why you run away in the first place. You simply cannot imagine a God or a future where your worst enemies actually listen to the word of God and are actually forgiven and not actually destroyed. 
You cannot imagine a grace that extends to the very people you hate most. You are unable to imagine such a future. You are only able to remember your past predicated by prejudices and stereotypes and ignorant cliches about the Ninevites. You cannot imagine a kingdom future where there is neither Greek nor Jew, woman or man, slave or free. You, Jonah, like us, have an arrested and suffocated and strangled imagination and cannot envision a reality created by a God who does not look like you or think like you or talk like you. Your imagination, like ours, has been silenced by the tropes and ghosts of the past. Your fear, Jonah, is the same fear that we all have, that God will spare the very people that you want to see die. It's unimaginable. Lack of imagination for the future necessarily tethers us to the past then, even if that past is built on lies. Unimaginative humans come up with slogans like MAGA, which invites people to nostalgically and longingly call upon a past that never truly existed. It urges people to fabricate a history based on the false assumption that America was great for everyone. Slogans like this intentionally recall times of manifest destiny or Jim Crow, times when women fought for equal pay and reproductive rights, times when gay marriage was illegal, times when lunch counters and water fountains were not for everyone. Those were not great times for everybody. Slogans like this breathe life into prejudices against humans whose skin is a color other than white. They resuscitate phobias against people whose sexuality is anything other than straight. They revive oppression against women, children, and poor people. They encourage suspicion of people from other lands with other faiths whose tongues utter other languages. They justify stealing land from indigenous nations. Only a systematic and intentional whitewashed history was great for everyone. This slogan is profoundly and inherently problematic for Christians because it forces us to categorize humans into desirables and undesirables, those who are blessed and those who are cursed, those with power and those who are trampled underfoot. By urging people to recall a false past, there's no need to imagine a different future of grace and inclusion and forgiveness. So in Jonah, what are you afraid of? Why do you run away? You run away because you are stuck between being able to imagine only those things that humans are capable of, hatred of the Ninevites and wishing for them to die, and those things that God is capable of, forgiving the Ninevites and inviting them into relationship with God. Nonetheless, Jonah, your story beckons us into a world of vivid kingdom imagination, one in which God exists in dynamic relationship not only with humans but with all of creation. One of the funniest parts of this story is that when the people of Nineveh finally listen to your message calling for repentance, not only do the people smear themselves with ashes and put on sackcloth, which are symbols of repentance, but the animals do too. This is funny imagery, the thought of animals walking around wearing robes of sackcloth with their faces smeared with ash. Funny though it might be, it's also a crucial part of the story because it shows God's willingness to invite both humans and non-humans into God's imaginative and dynamic love. 
In other words, Jonah, your story is not human-centric. It is creation-centric. And it reveals a God who doesn't rule creation like we have remote-controlled toys or marionette puppets pulled with strings. Your story shows us that it matters to God what we do and what we say and how we exist in the world. When God sees that the people and animals of Nineveh repent, God changes God's mind and does not destroy them. Why bother praying if we don't believe God hears us and is changed by us, even as we hear God and are changed by God? Another problem with you, Jonah, to be perfectly frank, is your ego. As the ship sails for Spain and is battered by waves and a raging sea, you are fast asleep in the hold of the ship. We recognize this from the book of Matthew, when Jesus is asleep in the boat and his disciples fear for their lives as the waves crash and the lightning flashes. But you are not Jesus. We see you sitting in the belly of the fish for three days as you await deliverance. And we think of Jesus, who descends to hell for three days in order to battle and defeat Satan. But you are not Jesus. So sorry to tell you, Jonah, that while you might think you have the right to stomp your foot, you might check yourself instead. You are not Jesus. You are just some dude whose dad's name was Amittai, whom God chose for you to do a specific job. But you ran away for all of the reasons we've already listed. You are not Jesus, Jonah. And in fact, your story is not even unique to you. Your story is also my story, which is the story of all human beings with egos that we manipulate our memories to recreate a God that never existed in order to try to control God, to create God in our image, to call God to arms to fight with us against those whom we hate. Instead of using our imaginations to envision a reality that is better than any human past, an imaginative reality that embraces humans and animals and all living things, a reality that calls us into God's future reality instead of tethering us to a past that never was. What are you afraid of, Jonah, really? Are you afraid that God can love your enemies, or are you afraid that God can actually love you? As you sit in the belly of the fish with death and decay all around, are you really afraid that God can love the Ninevites, or are you afraid maybe that God might also love you? After all, they might be polytheistic, but you are disobedient and judgmental. So whose sin is greater? Jonah, truthfully, I have also called out to God in times of my deepest distress. Many of my friends have too. When we have felt abandoned by God, times when sins consume us, crying out from the belly of darkness, yet knowing that God would be justified in destroying us, God changes God's mind and does not destroy us, just as God did not destroy you or the Ninevites. God's willingness to imagine a reality filled with sinners like us is almost unimaginable. What you are most afraid of then, Jonah, is that God can truly love your worst enemies and that God can truly love you. 
You are afraid that God might change God's mind from destruction to forgiveness for your enemies, but also that God might change God's mind regarding you. Is your tantrum at the end of this story that God doesn't destroy the Ninevites or that God doesn't destroy you? Is your tantrum that God can change from judgment to love even when humans cannot? Is your tantrum that while you and we cry out for human blood, God instead gives us his own blood? Is your tantrum and ours that we think we are entitled to kill that which we did not even create? Is our collective human tantrum the realization that we cannot control, subdue, or domesticate God? That we cannot limit or conditionalize God's imaginative love for all people? Humans are not gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. But you, Jonah, finally learned that God is. And this offends you. And it offends us. Because we have forgotten how to be imaginative people. But what if we rekindled the imaginations of our childhoods when we were pirates and Eskimos and kings and knights? And what if we pretended the kingdom of God into our daily existence by placing faith in God that God will save and deliver all of creation by daring to imagine a reality that is not rooted in a false past? What if we unmoored ourselves from a false history that never truly existed, one that is riddled with oppression and prejudice and racism, and instead imagine a reality where all enemies are forgiven, including the enemies that are our own selves? What if we imagined and pretended this kingdom reality into our daily lives now by loving and forgiving? What are we afraid of? Imagining a reality where all created things are swallowed up in God's grace, the wind and the waves, the swimming fish and the monsters of the deep, hunks of rock both underfoot and those strewn throughout the universe, pirates and Eskimos and knights and kings and elephants and lions, and also you and also me. Amen.